Father in heaven, we thank you for gathering us in the name of Jesus, our wonderful Savior. Thank you, Lord, that your word is trustworthy because you are trustworthy, that you are the sovereign Lord who moves nations and who acts in history. And we thank you, Lord, that you've brought us to this place. Our world is changing around us, Lord. You, you are the one in charge. We pray that we would respond appropriately. Fill us today with the Holy Spirit, we ask, and equip us to make disciples of all the nations, including the nations that you're bringing to our shores, to our neighborhoods. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. And uh, I feel very privileged to be here uh, and uh, am delighted to have this opportunity to share about uh, sharing Christ with Muslims. And it will have application, actually, to sharing Christ with Buddhists and Hindus as well. Um, and to anybody, really. But my focus, of course, is, is with Muslims. My name is Matt Walter. I'm the director of the Tampa Muslim Outreach. This organization uh, I established a year and a half ago, and our mission is to evangelize the 40,000 or so Muslims of the greater Tampa Bay area with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, before I even begin, I want to tell you that when I go to churches, I often face three obstacles in the churches. One of them is fear. Fear. And that, uh, I think, is very understandable. Uh, you'll hear my history, but there have been times when I have been afraid. I've been in Muslim countries as a missionary, and I've interacted with Muslims a lot, and there is something to fear. Islam is a movement of the devil, and it's out to capture souls, and there's a spiritual battle going on, and it is a dangerous one. But the safest place to be, I always tell people, is in the center of God's will. So I understand the fear, but God gives us something to overcome fear. If we turn to 1 John chapter 4, we learn this. We learn this as soon as I find it. Yes, here it is. John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And there have been times that I've been afraid. Uh, I was a missionary in the Middle East for many years in Jordan, and I think the time I've most been afraid was sitting in the barber's chair while on the television it was showing the U.S. doing something offensive uh, to Muslims in the Middle East. And the barber had his razor and was going like this and getting madder and madder as he watched it on the television. But obviously I'm still here, so I, I survived. But God can keep us from that. And the antidote, my friends, is love. If we find ourselves afraid, God has given us something, a positive gift from the Holy Spirit that will overcome that fear. And that is love. If we love them... We will overcome our fear. Second thing I come across is resentment. And again, you'll hear in my history, I have, uh, I'm a patriot. I love my country. I was in the Marine Corps, served as an intelligence officer in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And it, I was in Jordan when the Twin Towers went down. I was in a, in a taxi, and I heard the news on the radio in Arabic sitting in that taxi that the Twin Towers had gone down. I rushed home and watched the second tower collapse. And I just, I'm telling you, I wanted to leave the mission field, 
come back to the US, US, get back in the military, and go out and um, you know, do what the military does. Uh, but the Lord at that moment confronted me and, and said to me, who is your God? Who ultimately is the one who decides what you do with your life? Is it me or is it your nation? Suddenly, my love of my country, and I think love of country is very healthy and very good, was conflicting with what God had called me to do, which was love Muslims and preach the gospel to them. And I think we're being kind of faced with the same thing. We love our country, but we also have this command. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I am with you always to the end of the age. Do we love our country so much that we'll recoil from obeying God? That was the question being posed to me. And uh, we also know, you know, there's no place for resentment in the life of a Christian. You just look at the cross. When Jesus is on the cross, it says to us in the Gospel of Luke, they've, they've crucified him, they put him between criminals. And what is, as he's hanging there, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The very people who are killing and torturing him. And the question is for us, what's our attitude towards our enemies? Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for them. Pray for those who misuse you and spitefully mistreat you. Are we willing to do that to our enemies in this case? Just a question. Third thing I come across in the churches is apathy. By the way, I'm not seeing if any of this is hitting the mark in your faces. I think you're resisting me up till now, but that's okay. I've got a whole hour to work on you, so eventually. What about apathy? Apathy is this. Apathy is I'm too busy, and I know they're in my neighborhood. I know they're in my school. I know that they live down the street, but I've got other things to do. And thank you, God, but uh, I've, I've got more important things. Well, we heard today in the wonderful sermon that Chris delivered about the sovereignty of God from Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. Listen to this. St. Paul is talking to the Athenians. He's preaching the gospel to them, and he's explaining to them how the world works. He's talking about how history works in a nutshell. Here's how it works in a nutshell. From one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history, that is, how long they would live, and the boundaries of their lands, that is, where they would live. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. Do you realize what those verses are saying? Next time you're in Walmart, probably after nine at night, you'll probably see a woman with her kids and she's wearing the Muslim, what's called the hijab. And you'll look at her and from these verses, can you tell me who brought her to the United States of America? You won't admit it to me, will you? Who brought her? God did, that's right. God decides where everyone lives, and he has a purpose for it. You see, God knows, because of his sovereign wisdom, 
that that person in that particular place and in that particular time is most likely to search for him, reach out for him, and perhaps find him. And it may be that God put that person next to you for that very purpose. God is moving in history. And yes, our immigration system is messed up and needs to be cleaned up. But nevertheless, God is turning what Satan means for evil to good. He's bringing the nations to our shores. Fear, resentment, and apathy. So I just want to give you, uh, I want to cover two topics today. Because my goal is that you should leave this room prepared to share the gospel in an effective way with Muslims. And actually, this applies, I am told, though I'm not an expert in these areas, to Buddhists and Hindus as well. So today you'll leave equipped from this room to share the gospel with Muslims in a way that they will hear it and understand it. So I want to cover two topics rather briefly, and then we'll have a time for questions at the end. First of all, what is Islam? I want to tell you... um, in in a nutshell, what that is. And secondly, how do we reach them? How do we as Christians effectively share with them the gospel? But first, I need to uh, tell you a little bit more about myself. That's my family, my wife Maeve, and our seven children. My oldest is 17 and my youngest is two. Um, You know, my policy is, if you can't win Christians for Christ, make Christians for Christ. A little bit about my history. I have a total of 15 years uh, in the Middle East. When I was a kid, we moved to Iran uh, when when I was five. That's where my family got saved, another story. Um, My dad was a businessman. We were there for five years while the Shah was there. We left. I went to college at Yale University and studied Near Eastern languages and literatures. Between my freshman and sophomore year, I spent um, some time in the country of Jordan at a missionary language school studying Arabic. And then after college, after graduating from Yale, I did the next logical thing. I joined the Marine Corps. Say, Ura. All right, thank you. Yes, very good. Uh, And uh, had a wonderful time in the Marine Corps for four and a half years, was in Desert Shield, Desert Storm as an intelligence officer. And then after the Marine Corps, married my wife Maeve. um, And that's another story, which I'll pass over today. But uh, we decided to go to Jordan again as short-term missionaries. And we were there for six months uh, in in the early 90s. And then we returned in 1999 after I attended Bible school and were there for eight years. I was in Jordan and ran a language school that teaches Arabic to missionaries. So we left in 2007, have been back in the States. About a year and a half ago, my wife and I uh, realized that God was calling me away from church ministry. I was an assistant rector at an Anglican church. I'm Anglican, but I always say I'm Anglican, but I love Jesus. So, um, and uh, uh, we realized that God was calling us away, and we started to look at the the city of Tampa. I thought I was going to plant a church down here, but the Lord made it really clear. He wanted us to equip Christians to reach Muslims with the gospel. So that's what we've been doing for the last year and a half. So that's my background, Um, and I, I feel privileged to be here and sharing this message to the churches and um, preaching to to Muslims the gospel. So let me equip you in one of the speediest speediest overviews of Islam I think you'll ever hear, hopefully. Um, What is Islam? Um, First of all, let's get some basic statistics. There are 1.63 billion Muslims worldwide. That's almost a quarter of the world's population. 
Uh, there are, we don't know how many there are in the U.S. No one has the numbers. The government doesn't take surveys based on religion. But people estimate anywhere from 3 to 7 million. That number is growing really rapidly. Does anyone know any Muslims? Yeah, if I'd asked that 10 years ago, the hands wouldn't have gone up. The hands are going up now, and in a f another 10 years, you're all going to have hands up. They're coming and they're moving in uh, in, in large numbers. Uh, I estimate there are 40,000 plus in Hillsborough and Pinellas counties. That's based on estimates taken from 2000 to 2010. The number between 2000 and 2010 tripled in those two counties, and the growth rate doesn't seem to be abating. Okay? Um, for example, in Temple Terrace, the city government says that one out of every four people is from the Middle East and that most of those are Muslims. Okay, so we've got a changing situation. Here's a map of the United States. It's kind of hard to see from where you're sitting, but the colors show where the concentrations of Muslims are. Florida is fourth in the nation for the number of mosques in the state, and I think it's fifth for the, the population of Muslims, in, not in the state, in the country. All right? So what is Islam? Here's the nutshell. Islam is reverence for three things. A person, Muhammad, a book, the Quran, and a tradition, a set of teachings that have been handed down over the years called the Hadith. So first, let's look at the book. Uh, Muhammad. Uh, sorry, not the book, the man, Muhammad. He was born, according to tradition, in 570 A.D. in Mecca in Saudi Arabia. When he was about 40 years old and he was meditating in a cave, he began to receive what he thought were, at first, were the uh, possession of a demon, but became convinced were revelations from a spiritual being that identified itself as the angel Gabriel and gave him a new scripture to recite, a scripture that would replace the Bible. Um, so he started sharing these revelations, these poetic uh, sayings with people around him in his city of Mecca and his following grew. So did his opposition. He moved to a city called Medina, came back to Mecca. By the time he died at the age of 62 in 632 AD, the movement had taken over the entire Saudi Arabian Peninsula. They then expanded militarily so that today these in green are shows Muslim-majority countries uh, and then the red is a different kind of... Uh, of Muslim, what happened, and the reason I think we're not Muslims today, because it seemed like nothing could stop them from conquering the world, is because um, although he had 13 wives, Muhammad never had a male child that survived. If he had, they would have known who was supposed to take over. But right after Muhammad died, an argument broke out, who gets to take over the Muslim uh, movement now? And it became split between two groups. One group thought it should be a family member. They became known as Shiites. The other group thought it should be chosen by consensus. They became known as Sunnis. And they became about 85% of Islam now. Shiites are about 15%. Shiites are shown in the red. That's I Iran, Iraq, Azerbaijan. The rest of the countries are Sunni. We have both here in the Tampa Bay area. In Pinellas County, a lot of Shiites in uh, Temple Terrace and New Tampa, where I live, a lot of Sunnis, but they're mixed all around as well. Okay, so that's the man. What about the book, the Quran? The Quran is the collection of those sayings that God gave to Muhammad, supposedly, through that spiritual being that identified itself as the angel Gabriel. They realized after he died, we need to collect these things or we're going to lose them. 
So they put them in a book called the Quran. Now, they believe that this book is perfect. Uh, they think it, uh, that um, it's, it, it has been eternally with God and that it's only valid in the Arabic language. Okay, how many of you speak Arabic? None. Okay, well, I can teach you if you would like. But uh, let's, learn, let's learn one word because this will be so helpful to you. If you ever meet an Arab, you can try this word on them, okay? Because Arabic is so important. They think that God speaks Arabic, basically. His, his divine revelation is in Arabic and it's been eternally with him. It's God's language. Okay, so I'm going to teach you to speak Arabic and this is for free. This is extra without any cost. You look so enthusiastic about what I'm about to do. Okay, here it is. But before you learn this word, this is the word for hello, it's marhaba. Everyone repeat after me, marhaba. No, no, I mean really repeat after me, marhaba. Thank you. Now that H that I said, they have two H's in Arabic. They have a normal H. Say the word happy. 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 Yeah, that's a, what they call a soft H. That's our H. And that's a, a, a letter in their language, but you can't use the soft H in marhaba. Okay, you have to use the heavy H. And the heavy H is formed, put your right hand over your throat. Heavy H is formed by blowing air through your esophagus and squeezing the esophagus slightly as the air goes through. Please do not squeeze too hard today. All right, so everyone, blow air through your esophagus and squeeze and release. Those are very good heavy H's. That's excellent. You're just not allowed to go around talking to Arabs with your hand on your throat. So you have to learn how to do it without your hand. Now everyone do that without your hand. <sighs> excellent, excellent. Okay, so now let's do that. M-A-R-H-A-B-A, marhaba. Af repeat after me, marhaba. Marhaba. Okay, excellent. Next time you see someone who looks like they're an Arab, you can say marhaba. And if they're not an Arab, you're just an American making funny noises at them. <laughs> but if they are an Arab, you've opened a door because they'll go, where did you learn that? And you can tell them Matt Walter of the Tampa Muslim Outreach who is teaching me to convert Muslims to Christianity taught me that. You don't have to put all that in. <laughs> but you can say, I learned that at church because we're being taught to love Muslims. And then a door will open for you to communicate. So anyway, that's, a, that's an aside. The Quran, written in Arabic, is considered perfect, letter for letter. And what they'll do when they're talking to you is they'll say, oh, you, you read the Bible, do you? What version do you use? And you'll say, what version do you use here? New American Standard Bible, very good Bible. And they'll say, oh, does everyone use that version? You'll say, no, some people use the English Standard Version or the New King James Version. And they'll say, which one is the word of God? Which one is his word? And they'll say, in the Quran, if you go to um, Saudi Arabia, or you go to New York, or you go to uh, Indonesia, the Quran is exactly the same everywhere in the world. That proves that it's the word of God. That's what they say. And so you've got to be kind of ready to respond to that. All right. Uh, <coughs> besides the man and the book, we also have a tradition. You need to know about this because this is really what decides Muslim behavior. About 200 years after Muhammad's death, they began to collect all the things that he had done and said, and they put them in collections. 
because it's really hard for Muslims to understand the Quran. It's very vague. If you've ever read it, it's hard to get specifics out of it. The Bible is much clearer and, you know, as a result, harder because we know what it says. But the Quran's hard to understand. And so immediately they started to collect sayings from the prophet and stories about his life so they would know what to say and do in life. And these are known as the hadith. It's where they get how they dress. It's where they get uh, their inheritance laws. Everything in life is covered by the hadith. So if you see, for example, a Muslim man with a beard and no mustache, have you ever seen that? They'll do that. They'll, they, they wear their facial hair a certain way. It's because there's a hadith that says uh, a, a uh, Muslim once came to Muhammad and asked, how should we wear our facial hair? And Muhammad said, well, the infidel wear mustaches. So let's do the opposite. Let's wear a beard and cut off our mustache. And so they think now that's God's will for the Muslim community. And it shows which, um, which uh, hadith they follow. All right. Uh, this is hard to see, I think, from where you are. But the Muslims believe, as a result of the teaching of the Quran and the hadith, that after death, their good deeds will be put on a scale and their bad deeds will be put on the other side of the scale. And whichever side of the scale weighs more will decide their destiny. And so the good deeds that they can do are organized into five categories. First is saying the shahada. It's considered a good deed to give their one-sentence statement of faith. La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasulullah. There is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. And um, I said that, but I didn't mean it. So I'm not a Muslim. But if you say that and mean it, it makes you a Muslim. Second thing is prayer. They pray, are supposed to pray five times a day, and they do it in a certain way, and they say certain things. And that's another good deed that they do. Another one is fasting. During a month in their year, they fast from sunup to sundown every day of that month. It's called Ramadan. Has anyone heard of that before? Yeah. And then um, at the end of the day, they have a big feast. They're not supposed to take water. They're not supposed to take any food into their body during that fast. They're supposed to also give alms to the poor, about 2.7% of their income, which is so much better than 10%, isn't it? Of course not. But, uh, but that's what they're supposed to do. And it's also only taken out of their profit, not their, I guess you call it their gross. And the final thing they're supposed to do is once in their life, go to Mecca on a pilgrimage to go do certain things that are prescribed by the Quran in Mecca where Muhammad did his ministry and had his base of operations. Those are called the pillars of Islam. You know, I'm constantly learning and making mistakes and um, one big mistake I made was, I was we were getting to know a, an Iranian family. Um, I came from Ocala to Tampa. We were in Ocala at the time and getting really close to them. They were Shiite Muslims. And at one point he turned to me, I was sharing Christ with them. He turned to me and he said, was Muhammad from God or not? Was the Quran from God or not? And I thought for a second, and I thought, well, I just better be honest. So I said, no, it was not from God because the Quran denies the crucifixion of Christ and it denies 
um, that Jesus is the Son of God. And immediately he shut down and there was no opportunity anymore to share Christ with him. We lost him. And I realized, you know, there are probably better answers to handle that right on the spot, although I told the truth. You know, I'm an American. Americans tell the truth, right? Or they're supposed to tell the truth. But they come from a culture where you're, there's honor also involved. So the next time I had an opportunity to answer that question was two weeks ago. I've been meeting with a, um, a guy who works for CARE. Have you ever heard of CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations? Well, he's reading the Bible with me, and we're studying it together and uh, comparing it to the Quran. And he asked me the same question. He said, do you believe that the Quran and Muhammad were from God or not? And ding, I thought, hey, learn from your mistakes. So I said to him, that's a great question. I wonder, how do we know if a book is from God or not? And I asked him, what do you think? He said, well, if it resonates in your heart. I said, great, let's study the Bible and see if that's from God, if it resonates in your heart. Cool, huh? God, you know, we learn. Even guys like me learn from their mistakes. So how do we reach them? I'm telling churches there are three things we need to do in order to reach them. Uh, first, we need to pray. Ephesians 6, if, Ephesians 6, 12 tells us this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we're not struggling against Muslims. We are struggling against spiritual powers that are keeping them bound in darkness. And those spiritual powers are dealt with through prayer. God has been emphasizing to me again and again, this battle will be won through prayer. Dependence on God calling on him to stretch out his hand and have mercy and open hearts and open eyes. He's been showing this to me in a number of ways. I remember um, last year, about six months into this ministry, I was getting really discouraged, and I got up early in the morning at about 3 o'clock and went for a prayer walk. My prayer walk took me about five miles out of my house. I turned around at the public library and came back to my house. Later that day, my wife said, would you please take the kids to the library? So I did. I took the kids back to that same public library. I walked in, and um, it's my habit, whenever I see a Muslim, I would ask you to do this as well. Whenever I see a Muslim, someone who's maybe covered or someone I become aware is a Muslim, I pray for them. God, please preach the gospel to them today. God, please open their hearts to understand the gospel. So I saw a woman, an older woman, Muhajjabe, we call it, wearing the covering off in the stacks. And I, I was sitting in a chair. I said, Lord, please preach the gospel to her today and please open her heart to the gospel. Immediately, she put down the books she was looking at, wandered around the library, came and sat down right next to me. I said, God, that's not what I meant. And what followed was a conversation. I just started talking to her, and we spent 45 minutes talking about Jesus Christ and about what he had done for her on the cross. She had been in the United States 15 years and had never heard it before. I believe, as the church just does this simple act of praying, the nations will be reached for Christ because it's done through God's power anyway. And I think God was showing me something there. Well, he, was, he, he knew I needed the lesson reinforced about two months later. 
I was going downtown, and I asked my son Thomas to pray for me to meet Muslims and preach the gospel to them. He put his hand on me. He said, God, I pray that dad would meet a Muslim at the public library today. I wasn't going to the public library, but he didn't know that. I thought, well, God understands the intent of the prayer. Right before I left the house, my wife gave me some library books and said, could you return these to the library? So I went uh, to the library, put the books in, saw a Muslim woman there, prayed for her, said, Lord, preach the gospel to her, and um, please help her to understand it. And then I ran to the stacks to avoid her. Came out of the stacks, she was gone, thank heavens. Started walking out of the library, looked over, there she was, and she was staring right at me as if to say, when are you going to tell me what you have to tell me? So I walked over to her, and I started to share Christ with her. We had a long conversation. She had just come from Syria. I don't know if you know what's going on in Syria, but her, as she described what was going on, tears were going down her face, and her daughter was there with their, her three little grandchildren. I was able to share with them. We were able to hook her daughter up with some employment and help the family and so on. A seed was planted on that day. So I guess the lesson is that my ministry is a public library ministry to female <laughs> Muslims. But um, the other lesson is that prayer works. God is waiting for us to pray. And as we pray, he'll open the door. Second thing is interaction. So prayer and interaction is the second thing. A study of 78 converts in the United States found 70% of them reported dreams and visions as being vital in their, um, in their salvation. But 100% of them said it was the witness of a loving Christian friend. That means God is using Christians, people, you and me. And by the way, as I look at Muslims that come to Christ in the United States, they're coming to Christ not through people like me who are in the ministry. They're coming through people like you who don't think that that's what you're supposed to be doing. They're coming through friendships with Americans in churches, just regular people who know very little about Islam. That's how God is choosing to work. He can use you. That's the, that's the awesome power of his name. Okay, an uh, important thing in hospitality, I mean, in, in interaction for Muslims in their cultures is hospitality. Friends, we live in the South. We should know about hospitality, right? But we're kind of losing our touch. People don't go to each other's houses anymore. If you were to go to Jordan, where I served as a missionary for so many years, and you were to go to a village out in the country, and you walked from one end to the other, someone would say hello to you, a bunch of people would say hello to you, and someone would invite you to their house for dinner, and they would mean it. I see nods here from some of you. You all probably come from places where that's true. Well, imagine those same people emigrating to the United States, landing in Tampa, and walking across Tampa. What's going to happen to them? Nothing. We've lost the touch of hospitality. We're too busy. But I want you to consider this. If God puts a Muslim into your life, it is perfectly valid for you on the first conversation with that person to say, would you please come to my house? Let's have some coffee and talk about this some more. If you do that, if you bring a Muslim into your house under your roof, I promise you have just supercharged your ability to speak into their life. It means so much to them. So much. You know, someone has said, and I think they're right, Muslims come to Christ after about 10 at night 
and when they're visiting in your home. And that's the truth. It's the truth. So consider that. Say, Lord, (coughs) I'm yours, and so is my house, and make it available to him. This is a picture of us visiting some Muslims. They're inviting us, of course, and they know how to do it. Look at that table. Look at the amount of rice on that table. Do you think we can eat all that? You know, when I first went to Jordan, when I was 18, took that year off, I, I had been taught by my mom, always finish your plate, okay? And um, so I would go to Arab homes when I was there, and they would put food on my plate, a lot, and I would finish it. What I didn't know was that in order to signal that you want to stop eating, you must leave some on your plate. And so I would clean the plate, and then another mound of food would appear on my plate. And I would think, wow, in order to please these people, I really got to, you know, dig down deep. I was 18. I could eat a lot, but I would finish that, and I, everyone, there would be an uncomfortable silence as they put another mound on my plate. <laughs> so clash of cultures. I learned, it was after a year, I learned that you leave the little bit on your plate to signal that you don't need any more. Um, but it was uh, painful at times. Okay, so um, that's hospitality. All right, now, there's, here's the key, and I, I want you to look at the handout that I have for you. This handout was developed by some missionaries in India. I have spent thousands of hours talking to Muslims about Christ. Almost always, I hit what I call a tripwire, and the conversation is over, a bit like the guy asking, is the Quran and Muhammad, are they from Christ or not? And then I say the wrong answer, boom, I've lost him. And if you hit one of these tripwires, it's over. You, the door has closed or you've gone off on a d- distraction and you can no longer focus on what's important. But uh, what has happened is these missionaries have developed a way to share the gospel that does not hit the tripwires until the very end. You can get through the whole presentation. The Muslim is nodding and nodding and agreeing until you get to the stuff right at the end and then they're ready to listen. It works. I'm using it all over Tampa. I'm telling you it's dynamite, and you have it right in your hands. It's this sheet right here. Two columns. On the left is what you say when you meet a Muslim. On the right is what the Muslim will probably say. So, for example, you're at Walmart. You're checking out. You're in the line. There's a woman there with all her kids, and you say (coughs) to her, are you a, a Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, or Christian? And she'll say, I am Muslim. And then you go to number two. Most religions are alike, aren't they? We're not used to saying that as Christians, are we? But the point, you'll see the point. Most, most religions are alike. We all want our sins to get paid for so we can go to heaven. Isn't that true? They'll nod vigorously. They're really trying to get their sins paid for. And then you go and then you uh, ask them, in your religion, what are you doing to pay off your sins? Muslims love this topic. They'll love to talk to you. If you were to do this to an American atheist, he would resent the fact or she would resent the fact you were bringing up religion. Muslims love to talk religion. That's great news for us. Um, And they love to talk about it anywhere. And so you can go off on on this way of sharing. But here are the tripwires that you normally hit. There are theological tripwires, political tripwires, and cultural tripwires. I'm going to go through them really quickly. Number one, that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what we believe. That's what the Bible has revealed to us. When Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. It's a direct quotation from God. Jesus is God's son. Amen? 
Amen. Now, that's very important to us. But if you say that to a Muslim early in your witness, you've lost them. Because they have been programmed from when they were little, little tinies to say, boy, how evil of the Christians to think that God had marital relations with Mary. I mean, that's, what they, that's the twisted thinking they've been programmed with. In fact, the, the Quran says, قُلْ اللَّهُ أَحَدُ اللَّهُ السَّمَدُ لَمْ يَلَدْ وَلَمْ يُولَدْ وَلَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ كُفْوًا أَحَدُ Say, God is elemental. Uh, God is one. He is elemental. There, he does not beget, nor is he begotten, nor is there anyone to share his majesty. And so they'll quote that all the time. They all know it by heart, and they all know that Christians are dead wrong on this topic. So you don't go into that right away. Second, that Jesus died on the cross. The Quran says, They didn't kill him. They didn't crucify him. It only looked like it to them. And so what the Muslims have decided happened is that right before the death of Christ, God rescued Jesus and took him bodily up to heaven and took someone else, maybe Judas, put him in his place, made him look like Jesus. They ended up killing the wrong guy. Jesus is in heaven, they believe, will come back to earth, to reestablish Islam, to um, destroy every cross on the face of the earth, kill all the pigs on the face of the earth, to um, get married, have children, and then die, and then rise with all the people for the day of judgment. So that's what they believe. Okay, another one is if we say the Bible says, they'll immediately say what I told you earlier. Which Bible? It's been corrupted, they think. They think that people change the Bible to suit their own needs. And they'll point to a bunch of different things. Aren't there scribal errors in the Bible and so forth? And they'll talk about the perfection of the Quran. By the way, it's really warm in here. Isn't it? Okay, good. <laughs> well, uh, that's fine. You guys are being very attentive. So, well done. All right, well, here's what I want to do. I want to do a quick practice. Um, so we have prayer, we have interaction, finally we tell them. So you pray for them, you interact with them, you invite them to the, your home or you, inf you interact with them in the, in the places that you meet them, maybe at the school, maybe at the university and so on. And then you tell them the gospel and you use this right here and just go through it. What I want you to do now is pair up with somebody in this room, okay? And one of you is going to play the Muslim and one of you is going to play the Christian. And I want you to go through this. All you have to do is the Christian just reads this column to the Muslim. The Muslim then responds in the way that it is in the right-hand column. Okay, let me give you an example. Let me, let me just give you an example right now of what I might say to a Muslim when I meet them. And I've done this many, many times. I would say, hello, how are you? Are you a Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, or Christian? I put Muslim second so they're not too threatened. They don't think I'm angry at them or something. And they say, well, I'm a Muslim. I say, oh, that's fascinating. You know, I think all the religions are kind of similar. We're all trying to find a way that our sins can be paid off because we want to go to heaven. Isn't that true? And they'll always say, yes, yes, that's true. Well, tell me, how in your religion, how are you paying for your sins? And they'll say, well, um, we say the shahada and we pay zakat and we go on the hajj, the pilgrimage, and uh, we fast, and so on. And I'll say, wow, uh, are your sins paid off yet? Muslims will always say, well, we don't know. Only God knows that. 
Well, tell me, when will your sins be paid off? By the way, I'm following the sheet. Is that right? Have I got it right so far? Good. And uh, they'll say, well, we don't know. I'll say, here's the clincher. You're making them more and more uncomfortable. You're turning up the heat, just like it is in this room on them. Uh, On the day of judgment, will your sins be paid off? This is the clincher. And it's always, here's the desperate cry of the soul. I don't know. Only God knows. In fact, in, in the Quran, they teach that God can take a good person and cast them into hell if he wishes. He can take an evil person and elevate them to heaven. It's up to God. In the end, it's capricious. So you say, well, what we believe is a little different. You know, I know that my sins are forgiven, not because I'm a good person, although I try, but because God has made a way for my sins to be forgiven. Um, And then you launch into a story about, called the first and last sacrifice. Jesus, who was perfect and did miracles, also one day gathered all his followers and he said to them, I have to die and rise again. Do you know why he said that? The Muslim will say, no, I don't know why I said that. You go back to the story of Adam and Eve. Well, if you'll recall, God created Adam and Eve. He put them in a wonderful place. He said, you can eat any tree, just don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the devil came, tricked them, and they ate from the tree. God kicked them out of the garden for that one sin. And by the way, that shows that you can't balance good and bad deeds. All it takes is one sin. You no longer can stay in the presence of God. And, uh, but God did something really interesting as they left the garden. He knew they were naked. They had tried to make clothes out of leaves, cover themselves. And that kind of shows that with sin comes shame, doesn't it? And the Muslim will nod their head. And we, we try to cover our own shame. It doesn't work, does it? And they'll nod their head. But what God did was he killed an animal and he made them clothes out of the skin of that animal. And that was the first time an innocent animal died in order to cover the shame of sin. Then, from then on, and now we're at uh, number seven. I'll turn it over on page two. From then on, the prophets all did the same thing. They killed animals to cover the shame of sin, to deal with sin. Adam and Noah and Moses and Abraham and David and Solomon. You're listing, by the way, all of their prophets. And, uh, and then that brings us back to Jesus. Early in Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist saw him and he pointed to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And why did he say that? Because a lamb is an animal used in sacrifice. And by the way, up till now, you've been using people and ideas that are in Islam. And they're nodding and they're thinking, How does this Christian know so much about my religion? But now you hit all the tripwires at once, kind of running through them at the end. You say, that's why Jesus Christ had to die. He was that, that sacrifice sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world. He let, he let the Jews turn him over to the Romans. The Romans killed him like a criminal. He took all that shame and all that sin that you and I have on himself. And the Bible says, in fact, if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. We have to simply accept this gift. And he rose from the dead to show his power over death. Then you ask two key questions. You ask, does that make sense that God made a way for our sins to be forgiven? And right here, you're testing their heart. Are they interested? Is the door open? Some of them will say yes. Some of them will say no, it makes no sense. And then you ask the last question. Do you believe this? Because it just might be 
that God has been working in their lives already, and they were just waiting for someone to come and make the invitation. And then they may say yes. Usually they say no, but I'm telling you, when I use this method, almost every time that last question, would you like to meet sometime to discuss this further, gets a yes. And that's why I'm meeting with a member of care and reading the Bible with him every week. This former military intelligence, Marine Corps officer, is meeting with a member of the Muslim Brotherhood for lunch, and I'm buying. That's pretty amazing. That's the gospel.